written in 2010 by the Australian social researcher Hugh Mackay. And he identifies 10 social desires that drive us, such as the desire to be useful, to belong, the desire for more. Now, this is one we can all relate to, the desire for control. Now, also in light of lockdown, this one's interesting, the desire for my place, where we can just be by ourselves, safe and away from the conflict and danger that others may pose, as the author puts it. Now, those driven by that desire are probably more content living in lockdown than those who are driven by another desire that he says, the desire to connect, connect with their community and their environment and connect with themselves. But as Christians, what, what makes us tick? What drives us to do what we do? The passage today explores questions. Uh, what, what, we do, what do we do as Christians and why do we do it? What, what makes us tick as Christians? And so the basic structure of this passage begins by giving us a guiding principle about what to do before giving us a few examples of what that looks like in practice in different situations. And then the second part of the passage goes on to explore why we do what we do. So we've got a what and we've got a why. So let's begin with a what in verse 23. Let's explore that together. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 says this, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is constructive. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yes, it's similar to chapter six that we looked at a few months ago. The Corinthian believers um, with their superior wisdom reasoned that if believers weren't put right with God through obedience uh, to the Jewish law, but through faith in Christ, then once one accepted Christ, they were free to do whatever they wanted. In the case of chapter six, that included a, a lax attitude towards sexual ethics. If you recall, Paul reminded them that anyone who acts on the principle that they have the freedom to do anything is in danger of losing their freedom. They're in danger of losing their freedom by becoming enslaved to the very desires and practices they feel they have the freedom to indulge in. Now here in chapter 10, the focus of freedom is on, on food of all topics, as we've been looking at in the last couple of chapters. It's a uh, last four uh, weeks, including this week. Uh, and they know that they're free from the Jewish ritualistic food laws and, and they know that idols don't exist so they can eat anything they want. Now, Paul agrees with this, but qualifies their claim by what he says in verse 24. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Now, this is a concise one-sentence summary of what we should do. And Paul expands on it across there in verse 33. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many. And he gives us the reason why, so that they may be saved. Ultimately, the good of others is that they may be saved. That is, they come to know what it means to be saved from the all-consuming slavery of seeking our own good. But set free to embrace a life, realising that we are known and loved by God and living with the freedom this security brings to seek the good of others. And when things are clear cut and black and white, it's easy to understand how to apply a slogan like, 
nobody should seek his own good but the good of others. It's, it's easy. You think it oh, reasonably straightforward. But it's not so easy when it comes to the grey areas of life where things are a lot more complex. And Paul utilises two examples from the grey area of eating food to apply the, this principle. And the first example is in verse 25. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, he says, verse 25. In the Corinthian society, most of the meat sold at a market had previously been sacrificed to idols. And from chapter 8, we saw that some of the new believers were still growing in their knowledge of God and thought that, that if they ate this meat, they would be involved in idol worship. Paul countered that by highlighting in chapter 8 that there is no other gods, so you don't have a problem. He said, uh, we know that an idol is nothing at all in this world and that there is no God but one. Yet for us, there is but one God, he says, the Father from whom all things come and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Now, in today's passage, Paul affirms that by stating in verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's a quote from Psalm 24 that we had read earlier, written about 1000 BC. Now, all food is a part of God's gracious provision, he's saying, and can be enjoyed with thankfulness. It is all God's, therefore, it is all good. All God's, all good. Now, the second example is mentioned in verse 27. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. Now, their neighbor or friend might have invited them over for a meal. Such dinners were common, as, as common as they are. It's the good old Barbie here in Australia at our mate's place. A few sausage sambos and a, a rump steak or two. Well, actually, probably just one rump steak is enough. You should see the size of them. But for the Corinthians, this kind of meal often served as a key way to establish networks in the community. To knock back an invite would risk social isolation and opportunity to engage with others, but unlike our own society. And then when Paul says to eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience, he's suggesting that they approach the food options at the meal table in the same way they did at the market. It shouldn't be an issue of conscience. All things are a gift from God, including the freedom to eat all things that come from God. All gods, all good. Paul also knows that although it was essentially a social occasion, there was often a religious element that could be ignored, that couldn't be ignored. That had to be taken into account. And he goes on in verse 28 to say, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. Now, to discover it is an idle food and still go ahead and either buy it at the market or eat it in your neighbor's home could send mixed messages to those around you. For example, it could be interpreted by those around you as your tacit support and agreement of idolatry, that the idols were somehow real gods to worship, and you're acknowledging that by eating the food. Also, the people around you could also conclude that the believer is not consistent with their own convictions, or even worse, a hypocrite. Your weak commitment means you must serve a weak God who's not worth the glory and honour you attribute to it. 
Now, Paul knows that they are free to eat because, you know, there are no other gods. One. No other gods but one. You have that freedom, he says. It's all God. It's all good. But for the sake of not creating a misunderstanding, you can choose not to. Actually, choosing not to could actually also end up creating an opportunity to explain the, the believer's perspective. The table talk over a meal was just, just as much a part of the Corinthian culture as it is with ours today, as we, we have conversations around the table. But he continues on verse, in verse 29. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? He goes on. If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I, I thank God for? It might appear at first that Paul is getting a bit defensive here, but the gist of what he's saying is that he doesn't want to give the pagan an opportunity to dismiss the gospel message on the basis of an incorrect judgment about the believer's actions. In other words, why should I put myself in a position where another could easily misinterpret what I'm doing and conclude something incorrect about God? Now, for example, if I join in an interfaith prayer meeting with people from other religions, am I endorsing the misunderstanding that all faiths lead to God? Now, so far we've seen the principle that about what to do, about what to do. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Now, Paul has shown that us it depends on the situation about how we apply it. It's a little bit like a choose your own adventure scenario. Do you remember those books you're reading as a kid, the choose your own adventure? You have the guiding principle, and then based on the information you have at hand, you, you make a decision. Sam was using this as an example in small group on Wednesday night. But the decision you make depends on the situation. You make different decisions in different contexts according to the, the information that comes to hand and, and guided by the, the overarching principle. So eat this food in one context, but not eat it in another context. It all depends. Paul goes on to give us more clarity by moving from what to do and explaining why to do it. Unpacks it a little bit further. This, is, this brings us to the why we do what we do. What makes us tick? Look, look at verse 31 with me. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is the ultimate message of this whole section on the food sacrifice to idols from chapters 8 to 10. Well, actually, it's the ultimate goal of the whole Bible, really. <laughs> yeah, our whole lives. Although food has been the topic, the issue has never really been about food in and of itself. Focusing on the food means we're asking the wrong question. We need to be asking, is the way that I'm handling this situation giving glory to God? Now, we throw the expression for the glory of God around all the time. And we love to sing the hymn, To God Be the Glory. Wasn't it great to have that song at the beginning? I love that song. And it's uh, even richer when we can be in the same room together and belt it out. It's a great one. But in its simplest terms, to glorify God is to make God look good. Not in the sense of trying to create an impression of something that is not true in reality, but sort of just trying to cover it up and make it look good. 
like uh, one political party recently encountered when one member said about multicultural candidates, uh, as it came up in the paper yesterday, this is the quote, multiculturalism can't just be a troop that we pull out and parade while wearing a sari and eating some kind of gumbal chicken to make ourselves look good. What a great quote that is. Now, unlike the world in which we live, God is not inconsistent. Making God look good is not about giving an impression to cover up some kind of weakness. There are no weaknesses with God. He is worthy of our honour. His character is where true glory is found. Our role is to show people the glory of God that is already there by the way that we live and as well as with the words that we say. As we've travelled through 1 Corinthians, we've seen this playing out. Now, chapters 1 to 4 has highlighted it in the language of wisdom. Chapters 5 and 6 showed us that sexual immorality among God's people dishonours God, and, and chapter 7 countered that by highlighting how sexual purity among Christians honours God and is designed for sexuality. Chapters 8 and 10 here have been showing that idolatry dishonours God, but while the coming chapters from 11 to 14 show how we can counter idolatry with God-honouring worship. We also glorify him by living in light of the return of the resurrected Christ, as chapter 15 draws out. So as we live our lives as Christians, we will either make God look good or look bad. Let's reflect on Let's reflect on that for a few moments. Let's begin with a negative for a moment. How do we make God look bad? Or how not to bring glory to God? Verse 32 picks up that. He says, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. The word Greeks, as it's used in this particular verse, is another way of expressing the word for Gentiles. So the verse encapsulates everybody inside and outside the church. Now, the verse is not talking about the message of the gospel itself. As chapter 1 reminded us, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The message will always offend some people. But it's saying don't do anything to darken or to cast a shadow over the goodness and kindness of God in such a way that it will cause somebody to lose sight. Of the truth and the glory of Jesus. And a, a very simple example, I, I get upset at my neighbour for, for doing something inconsiderate and I express it in no uncertain terms. We've all done that. And how can I turn around and then invite him to church? I'm casting a shadow over the goodness of God. We might get really aggressive in a discussion about what we believe and uh, we get carried away with our emotions and we get quite heated. We might win an argument, but at you know, what cost? We're casting a shadow over the goodness of God. I feel hard to create a gospel-shaped culture in our church where the only thing that offends people is the message of the foolishness of the cross and not our offensive behaviour in bringing it. 
But how about the positive? How do, how do we bring glory to God? He goes on in verse 33, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Now, we're not here talking about trying to win someone's approval according to their unrealistic expectations to, to validate our own sense of worth. A value doesn't come from the superficial opinion of others. It's the interview that we'll have later we'll, we'll show. But we're also not in the business of carrying favour with people for our own good, for what we can get out of it. I remember when I was living overseas in Asia, uh, sometimes I would meet people who were really friendly. So, oh, wow, this person's really friendly. And then after taking us out for lunch or for a walk in the park or ringing us on our birthday, they would ask us to help set up an English school or teach somebody English or something like that. I couldn't say yes to everyone. And so if I, if I, if I said I wasn't able to, then all of a sudden I'd disappear out of my life. I felt manipulated. And after a while, I became suspicious of every time somebody was friendly to me. The only reason people were being friendly because they wanted something out of me. Let's make sure that we don't have that kind of reputation among unbelievers. But it's also important to remember that giving glory to God is not always about being in the, in the limelight and such as when the, the high jumper, uh, silver medalist at the Tokyo Olympics, I'm not sure if you saw it, uh, the interview with uh, Nicola McDermott. Amazing. Uh, after, the, uh, after she won the silver medal, she had the interview and um, she shared about a Christian face and gave glory to God in the, in the post-match interview on international television. Now, of course, not all of us are going to be in that situation. For most of us, it's often about the day-to-day -day moments where you put yourself out for others. Not to be grappled over and abused, but doing what is right for people for their own good. And their ultimate good is that they may be saved and embrace the news, the glorious news of Jesus Christ. Could be reflected in the way we relate to our families, caring for our family members who are unwell, caring for elderly parents, not giving up on our loved ones gives glory to God and it makes the God we serve look good. I know that many of you are faithfully doing that. Be encouraged to keep persevering. Your faithfulness in the name of Christ and care gives glory to God. It highlights the goodness of God and God's faithfulness to us. Other ways to seek the goodness of others, the good of others is one of the simplest ways is to ask people questions about themselves, to take a genuine interest. Some people say growing up in a, a generation of social media, we have lost the art of asking questions. During this time of lockdown, let's keep taking time out to, to call people. When we do, let's not spend the whole time talking about ourselves. Look hard at learning the art of asking questions as we seek to serve people, both people within and outside the church. Maybe you can talk with someone after the service about something you could do this week that benefits someone else, makes God look good.
So at the end of the day, these verses, Paul, in these verses, Paul is basically drawing out the connection between the two great commandments in the Old Testament and as Jesus summarised them, to love God and to love your neighbour. We love God by loving our neighbour. Love our neighbour by not putting anything in the way that would cast a shadow over the goodness of God, obscure their view of Jesus, that would cause them to stumble. We do that by seeking their good. And the ultimate good is their salvation. But one of the stumbling blocks that we may be putting in people's way is acting like we have it all together sometimes. We all struggle to seek the good of others, don't we? And none of us are perfect. I, I feel really uncomfortable preaching this sermon. So I know I'm not very good at this, doing, doing this all the time. I feel uncomfortable around people who pretend that they have it all together, giving the impression that they're all good, expressing their own Christian spin, you could say. And I fall short in so many ways and I never want to pretend to be otherwise. But we need to remember that God didn't lay this principle down of serving others as a means of us trying to earn his approval to prove ourselves to him so that we might be good enough to, to somehow go to heaven. No one is good enough, not even one. But there is always an exception, isn't there? Jesus was good enough. He was the one who always sought the good of others. He became the ultimate suffering servant who gave up his life for the good of many, as Isaiah puts it. Through his death on the cross, he takes the judgment we deserve for not seeking the good of others all the time. The status of his perfect life is transferred across to us. So we are free to approach God with a clean slate. His resurrection confirms that he has the authority over death itself. So all who trust in him will not perish, but have eternal life. It is from this position of security that God sends us out into the world to serve others so that they may be saved. It is because we are secure in Christ that we are able to serve others, that we're free to serve others. Not because we are perfect and unblemished people, But it's when we know the glory of God as revealed in the gospel and how glorious that is, when we know the glory of God, that we can live a life that reflects the glory of God. The good news of Jesus is the glory of God. And that's why Paul can say in chapter 11, verse 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Well, this passage highlights the tension between embracing the freedom that God has given us to enjoy all that he has provided, but also being willing to sacrifice it for the sake of others so that they may be saved. This tension is held together under the principle of glorifying God. True freedom is the freedom to choose to give up your freedom for the glory of God. So what makes us tick? What makes us tick? For, for Christians, it is the good news of Jesus. 
that makes us tick. It is the reason we do what we do. The gospel frees us up to live a life not seeking our own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Let me finish with a reminder of how glorious God is in the way that he demonstrated it through the life of Jesus. It says this in Philippians chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.